Well, I'm Lisa Pignanese. I'm your chair today. Um, I'm a writer, and I'm also, uh, when I'm not writing books like Mad, Bad, and Sad, and various others that you'll see on the um, table out there, as well as all our other books, um, I'm president of an organization called English Pen, which is the association of writers founded in 1921, just after the First World War, uh, which sees it as one of its main tasks to campaign for free imaginative expression, both here and around the world. And so as a result of that, I've been involved in various campaigns <coughs> to um, prohibit the restrictions on our free expression by our government here and, of course, also elsewhere. And some years ago, we ran a campaign um, called Free Expression is No Offense uh, against the uh, incitement to religious hatred laws in an attempt to demarcate what there conflicted with what we would usually expect of free expression, satire, and so on. Um, I'm going to introduce you to the rest of the panel and then just say another short word. Sitting next to me is Connor Geerty, um, who's well known to you at the LSE. Um, he is professor, oh, sorry, he's the director of the LSE Center for the Study of Human Rights and, of course, an expert on human rights law and a founding member of the very important Matrix Chambers. His many books include Civil Liberties, <coughs> Principles of Human Rights, Adjudication, and a more um, interdisciplinary and shorter book in 2005, Can Human Rights Survive? Next to him is uh, Ivan Hare, who is a barrister at Blackstone Chambers and uh, was for a long time a fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge, and therefore an expert in, in the kinds of law that I probably still find it very difficult to understand. Um, it's a very difficult field, this. He, he is... Um, um, the editor of the book that you see on the table in front of him called Extreme Speech and Democracy and um, has written other books as well and, and is also an advisor, I believe, to the Attorney General on uh, any number of subjects or maybe the more specific subjects that I don't yet know about. Sitting next to me here is Keenan Malik, um, who will be known to you as a, a broadcaster, a lecturer, uh, author of many books, um, including Strange Fruit, uh, Why Both Sides Are Wrong in the Race Debate, Man, Beast, and Zombie, and coming up in April, I believe, um, From Fatwa to Jihad, uh, The Rushdie Affair and Its Legacy. And you'll have he heard him speaking quite a lot <coughs> about that in the um, anniversary of the 20 years since the fatwa declared on Salman Rushdie. Now, I'm an outsider to the area of law, and I hope that our legal experts here will tell us a little more about this. What I do know about defamation and um, uh, the way uh, religion can somehow, um, I don't know, lessen our field of free expression is one thing. I grew up in a Catholic province of Canada called Quebec at a time when the church was still a very, very um, important player in the public sphere. And censorship, although we didn't always call it censorship, was rife. We were not allowed to go to the cinema. Many films were, were um, censored. Um, a, a long talk on television by Simone de Beauvoir, because she happened to mention the word abortion, was actually taken off the airwaves, and so on. So I know a little bit about religious censorship from my childhood. Um, but then when I came to England, it seemed to me that the, we did, despite the existence of blasphemy laws and um, 
um, the Church of England as, as if you like, the enshrined religion, we did effectively inhabit a very secular public sphere, certainly one which was friendly to a plurality of faiths and none. Um, this, I think, became something, uh, something of a question when the Rushdie Satanic Versus affair erupted on the public scene. And um, I think Keenan will talk a little bit more about that, but certainly in my consciousness, that was the first moment at which uh, religious forces, and, and you might debate whether they were indeed religious or certain, certain only took on the uh, identity grouping of a religion, but not, nonetheless, they were self-proclaimedly religious, felt themselves to have been um, insulted, offended by the existence of a work of, popu of uh, imaginative fiction. And many things resulted from that. But certainly that was the first, first time in my uh, personal consciousness that it became clear to me that there were, despite the existence of blasphemy laws, despite various obscenity campaigns by Mary Whitehouse and so on, that there was a real sense that religion had entered the public sphere in a new way. Um, so really, we're here today to talk about defamation. And the reason we're using the word defamation is that uh, over these last months at the UN, there has been a, a great move to make it uh, an offense to somehow um, defame religion, and in particular, the Islamic faith, because it's been the Muslim countries within the UN who have lobbied for this. It's now up for <coughs> debate, and it is... Um, something that we all need to consider. We no longer have blasphemy laws thanks to campaigns here, but we're going to hear more about the history of all that in terms of Britain and indeed some of the definition of the terms. First of all, from Ivan Ayer. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, can you hear me? It's too loud. Yes, I'll step back a little from the microphone. Um, thank you very much, Lisa, for introducing me, and thank you very much for the invitation. It wasn't so much of an invitation in that I effectively forced myself <laughs> onto this panel in order shamelessly to promote the book. <laughs> thank you, Paulia. <laughs> Recently published, so nearly last week, so hot off the press. Get it before it's remaindered. Um, at a uh, substantial 20% reduction uh, in the it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. He did not force himself. <laughs> Um, I should clarify one other matter. It, it is true that I am one of the uh, counsel to the Attorney General, but can I make it clear that I had absolutely no involvement in any sanctioning or changing of view about the legality of the Iraq War? Um, so turning to my talk itself, um, I'm going to take about uh, 10 to 15 minutes to set out some of the history, as Lisa said, background to the offence of blasphemy as it used to exist, sedition as it continues at least formally to exist, and then say something about the repeal of blasphemy law and the relationship between blasphemy law and incitement to religious hatred. I'd like to start with the definitions. Um, <clears throat> the definition of blasphemy is or was still extremely broad. In essence, though, as you know, one of the main criticisms of it was that it only applied to effectively the established church in this country, Protestantism and the Church of England. And it applied where it was thought that criticism of the Church of England or Christianity 
uh, crossed a boundary where it tended to endanger the peace then and there, to deprave public morality generally, to shake the fabric of society, and to be a cause of civil strife. You can see how broad, potentially, that definition is, especially where one's discussing matters upon which people can um, become very uh, incensed, given that they involve matters very close to their self-identity. The other element, of course, of the offence, it's important to keep in mind it was a criminal offence. We're talking about defamation, and mostly we think of defamation as being a civil matter, which only leads to awards of damages being imposed. It's important to remember that blasphemy was a criminal offence, and unusually for a criminal offence, was effectively an offence of strict liability. That is to say, the prosecution didn't have to show that in addition to having said these words, you also intended thereby to arouse resentment um, or uh, feelings of uh, hurt in your audience. So a very broad offence for those reasons, and out of kilter with the majority of modern criminal offences. That was the law of blasphemy. The law of sedition, if anything, was even broader, if it's possible to imagine anything broader, and really applied to almost anything that was felt to disturb the tranquility of the nation, whatever that means, and included uh, situations where someone acted with an intention to raise discontent or disaffection among Her Majesty's subjects or to promote feelings of ill will and hostility between different classes of such subjects. So again, potentially extremely broad, but pausing there, you can see to some extent it's narrower than blasphemy already because it did require that you had an intention to raise discontent. To that extent it was narrow. It was broader, obviously, in relation to the subject matter. It wasn't confined only to uh, religious matters. And the third point about that definition is you can see in that element of raising discontent or disaffection between subjects or promoting feelings of ill will and hostility between different classes of such subjects, the origin, in many ways, of the idea of incitement to racial hatred, about which I'll say a little bit, for which only became uh, an offence in 1965 uh, under the first of the Race Discrimination Acts, now, of course, in the Public Order Act. They're the old common law uh, offences. The new offence that we have is that of incitement to religious hatred, as you know. And the definition of incitement to religious hatred is where a person uses threatening words or behaviour or displays any written material which is threatening, is guilty of an offence if he intends thereby to stir up religious hatred. A couple of points about that. Um, the original proposal introduced by the government was essentially to tack on religion to the existing prohibition on incitement to racial hatred. The House of Lords very substantially narrowed that original proposal uh, in four crucial ways. Um, first, it became a separate offence rather than simply being tacked on to racial hatred. Secondly, it wasn't enough to use threatening, abusive or insulting words or behaviour, which is true of incitement to racial hatred, it had to be threatening words or behaviour, as I just indicated. Thirdly, uh, there's the additional requirement that the individual should intend thereby to stir up religious hatred. So unlike the old law of blasphemy, as I said, where there was no requirement of intention, but also unlike incitement to religious hatred, where it's sufficient that racial... Sorry, incitement to racial hatred, where it's sufficient that racial hatred would be likely to be stirred up. So again, a narrowing there. Uh, and finally... 
the House of Lords insisted on the insertion of a free speech clause, uh, which I think Connor's going to say more about, so I won't which say pen, any more about it. Which pen had a lot to do with Which pen had a great deal to do with, as I understand it, yes, quite right. <laughs> it's good that it's not just me promoting my own <laughs> <laughs> So, if I could just say something to say. <laughs> so disloyal, Connor. <laughs> um, so if I could just say three points, I suppose, about the history of blasphemy and sedition and how they related to each other. They were related in a number of ways. The three ways I'd like to emphasize are they were related in terms of their source, they were related in terms of their subject matter, and they were related as a matter of practice. So what we're talking about in these sort of offences, as I indicated, were common law, judge-made offences, in other words, that started to be applied by the judges of the ordinary courts, as far as blasphemy is concerned, rather than the ecclesiastical courts, which used to enforce the law of blasphemy um, before the Civil War. So we're talking about from the sort of mid to uh, last quarter of the 17th century, the Court of King's Bench, I'd say the court that still now the Court of Queen's Bench, obviously, but sits just down the road in the Royal Courts of Justice, and here's any number of suits where most judicial review cases take place, for example, um, was the court that began for the first time to enforce that what had formerly been a matter of ecclesiastical jurisdiction. So they're common law, and they were common law criminal libels in the same way. So there was seditious libel, sedition, as I just mentioned, blasphemous libel, blasphemy, um, there was criminal defamatory libel of the individual, but where it was felt to be so serious and potentially damaging to public tranquility that there should be criminal proceedings um, in relation to it. And there was obscene libel, now obviously very substantially overtaken, and in fact um, the field completely occupied by the Obscene Publications Act. So their source was essentially the same. They were enforced through the same mechanism, as I said, in the Court of King's Bench. The justification was also very similar, and this was very much a post-Reformation matter. After the Reformation, when effectively the um, head of the church and the head of state became unified uh, in the sovereign, and the sovereign became rather more than just um, defender of the faith, but the head of the church being in Rome, at that point, uh, it appears that our modern sort of justifications, if I can call the justifications for the, these offences modern, but are relatively modern, using it in the sense that people talk about modern history, I suppose, from about 1500, um, as being uh, united, really starts from that. And the point is, I suppose, a relatively straightforward one. If you have an established church, and if your sovereign, your king, is the head of that church, then criticism of the church uh, effectively becomes criticism of the sovereign, and therefore the argument is, in the same way that sedition is about undermining the authority of the state, by undermining religion, you're effectively doing something similar. And another point made by some commentators uh, later in the uh, 17th and 18th century, for example, if you look at uh, uh, Locke's uh, letter concerning religious toleration, one of the points that uh, he makes about why it's legitimate to enforce some forms of uh, blasphemy law, or at least try and insist on some sort of religious conformity is because you want to avoid this situation of the divided loyalty of what probably would have been described as the subject then, what some might call the citizen now, uh, and the fear in particular where Locke sort of drew his line about religious toleration was of Catholics because 
The fear was that they owed what they felt might be a higher loyalty to Rome than they may owe to the sovereign of the state in England and Wales. Law had another sort of element to this attachment to protecting the established faith as well. And that arose because in the early common law courts, the only way of attesting a document was by oath. And the oath had to be the established church oath, as it were, and as, uh, in order to be regarded as credible. In other words, you didn't have, as one has now, a, a pile of, uh, of religious books uh, in court upon which someone can swear to tell the truth. There was only the King James Version of the Bible, and you were expected to be a communicant member of the Church of England if you were to be believed. And some say that in parts of Europe where state-based bonds, as it were, were looser, but where there was a very strong need to ensure that oaths could be relied upon and deeds, which were the basis of many commercial transactions, could be enforced, that actually this element was the most important reason why blasphemy laws were enforced. People have done some research about in the Hanseatic League states, where there wasn't the same concept, obviously, of being loyal to a state because of a series of city-states. Blasphemy, they found, in these city-states was enforced very rigorously, more rigorously than in most other um, environments, most other jurisdictions at the time. And the point, the justification for that was felt to be, well, these oaths and the truth uh, the truths of businessmen are so crucial to the functioning of this mercantile arrangement in the Hanseatic League, that's why we enforce blasphemy. So there can be a range of justifications for it, obviously, some of which are a little surprising to the modern ear. But the idea is to ensure uniformity of belief so that you are going to tell the truth and abide by your promises and also so that you're not going to undermine the authority of the state. Practice, as I said, third element, united these offences of sedition and blasphemy as well. And a surprising number of cases that when you read the facts you think, oh, this looks like it's going to be a prosecution for blasphemy, actually turns out to be a prosecution for sedition. So effectively, prosecuting authorities almost regarded them, talking in the 17th and 18th centuries now, almost regarded them as alternatives. That shows the closeness of the relationship. And of course it explains why we wound up until just over a year ago having a law of blasphemy, a criminal law of blasphemy, which only protected the established uh, church. What's bizarre about that relationship, of course, is that sedition has gradually been narrowed uh, as a matter of common law, narrowed now to the point where most people assume it simply doesn't exist. And there are judicial statements from, I say as long ago, you might think it ought to have been said a little before this, but as long ago as the 19th century, uh, saying that the judges couldn't envision any circumstances in which it would be appropriate to charge someone with the offence of sedition. But, so that was narrowed progressively. Um, now, I think, probably to the point of non-existence. It doesn't mean, obviously, that the state doesn't have lots of mechanisms at its disposal to deal with people who might previously have been described as seditious, but they tend to be in anti-terrorism offences, public order offences, Official Secrets Act-type prosecutions. Um, but, as I said, bizarrely, Blasphemy was the only one, really, of those old forms of common law libel that escaped reform. As I said, the law of obscene libel has been effectively swept away by the Obscene Publications Act, which has within it a public good defence, maybe not rigorous enough, but nonetheless there, um, and at least therefore has some sort of democratic accountability as an offence. And equally, the law of criminal defamatory libel, the other of the four, which again is effectively now 
a dead letter. So blasphemy was a bizarre and anomalous survivor from that. So just to uh, round up on the second point that I was moving on to, which I'll take much more quickly, how we got to this situation of reform, repeal of the law of blasphemy, and how we got our new offensive uh, incitement to religious hatred, which I described before. The two are quite closely related and were related throughout the debates. Uh, a lot of people said at the time when the offensive incitement to religious hatred was being introduced, um, back 2004, 2005, 2006, that that needed to be introduced in order to remove the discrimination that was inherent in the law of blasphemy, which only applied to the Church of England. So we needed an offence to protect religious sensibilities, which wasn't confined to the established church. So the link was drawn there. And then again, after the Jerry Springer case, which I'll say a bit about in a few moments, when Parliament came to repeal the law of blasphemy altogether, year before last, Another one of the arguments used, again, showing the relationship between the two was, well, we didn't worry so much now about abolishing the law of blasphemy because we do have the law on incitement to religious hatred on the statute book, and therefore that will, as it were, take up the slack. Um, it's not a very persuasive sort of argument, is it, to say we're introducing a new offence of incitement to religious hatred in order to extend the protection of religious sensibilities across different <coughs> faiths, because if that's what you were doing, then you should have got rid of the law of blasphemy then. You know? Effectively, it meant that the established church had two different ways of being protected through law, because the blasphemy continued to exist and the incitement to religious hatred offence was added. So not an equalising provision uh, in any way. But there we are. That was how the relationship was explained as it went through the legislature. The, my own feeling about this whole process is that it just demonstrates... a. a and a, a terrible lack of awareness of the importance of the principled free speech arguments that should have led to the abolition of blasphemy, um, arguably centuries ago, but certainly decades ago. So my first point is the government was spurred into action um, to deal with the law on blasphemy, not by some you know, inquiry or you know, principled taking of views from around the country of those who might have something of interest to say about it, or a desire to get rid of unnecessary criminal offences, but was prompted into action by the case, the Jerry Springer case, about which I'm about to say a few words, uh, which had effectively held that blasphemy was more or less a dead letter as a matter of common law because of other statutory developments which hadn't addressed it directly but had effectively removed the scope for it. So the first point is the government failure, I think, is very much open to criticism to deal with it independently on their own initiative. And there'd been, which I think Kenan's going to talk about, a law commission report since 1985, the majority of which were very clear that law on blasphemy should be uh, abolished. Even the minority on that committee who dissented from the majority's overall view were of the view that you should get rid of blasphemy, but they felt it ought to be replaced with an offensive incitement. So that's the first point. The second point, as I indicated, a very disappointing failure in this case, the Jerry Springer case, to deal with the law of blasphemy as a matter of principle. So you'll remember the controversy arose out of Jerry Springer, the opera, uh, which was playing in London theatres for something like two years, I think, and indeed went on tour. And then the BBC proposed that it was going to broadcast a version of Jerry Springer, the opera, and uh, was inundated with calls of objection when it announced the proposal, and then with complaints afterwards. And representatives of the Christian voice uh, an organization then sought to issue proceedings in blasphemy against the producers 
of the Jerry Springer Show, and also the BBC, the director of the BBC, for having uh, broadcast it. Came before the Divisional Court, part of the Court of King's Bench as was, now uh, Court of Queen's Bench, which used to hear these masses. But unfortunately, rather than saying the law of blasphemy is uncertain and unclear and therefore is likely to have a chilling effect on uh, speech or adopting the more uh, sort of e equality-type arguments to do with, well, it's simply inappropriate today to have an offence confined so narrowly to one particular religion, especially where that's the established religion of the state. As I indicated previously, the court sort of said, well, the trouble is there are these provisions in the Theatres Act, 1968, and the Broadcasting Act, which basically say that you shouldn't bring proceedings where the core of the offence is offensiveness um, as a matter of common law. Now, that was true, of course, but both of everyone accepted that those provisions were directed at the law on obscenity, the old common law of obscene libel. It got nothing to do with blasphemy. No one even discussed blasphemy when those provisions of the Theatres Act and the Broadcasting Act were going through Parliament. Uh, and indeed, the reforms in the Theatres Act and the Broadcasting Act essentially adopt the wording of the Offensive Publications Act. So it was crystal clear, really, that that was what this, those reforms were intended to achieve. But the Divisional Court was prepared to accept, well, you know, what is blasphemy? It's about offensiveness, isn't it? Is it a common law? Yes, it is. So therefore we can say that it's been swept away as well, effectively. But a real legislative sidewind there, rather than grasping the principal free speech or equality arguments, just saying it's sort of quietly been shuffled off without any discussion. And by the way, although no one noticed it, it had been shuffled off in 1968, so why the Law Commission bothered to have its report in 1985, obviously not clear. The Irish High Court distinguished itself on this matter when a, it, there was an attempt made to bring a prosecution uh, in the early 1990s by saying, we think this offence is so unclear uh, that it doesn't, simply doesn't pass the test of transparency that you would expect of a criminal offence. A much more rational and principled view, uh, in, in my view. So... That's the other difficulty. Even the court didn't grapple with the issues of principle there. The government's original proposal, as I indicated, on incitement to religious hatred, going back to that for a moment, was very much broader than what I read out to you, the final definition. So it would just have been the same as incitement to racial hatred, i.e. where it's likely that um, uh, such offence might be caused, threatening abusive or insulting words or behaviour, no free speech clause, all those sorts of things. So the government can't take much credit for the fact that we've got this narrower offence now. And can't really, as I indicated, take any credit for the repeal of blasphemy because it was entirely reactive. It was only after the Jerry Springer case, which had fudged it unsatisfactorily, that they decided they were going to finally come along and repeal the law. So it's welcome that it's narrowed uh, the offence of incitement to religious hatred. I don't think it's welcome generally, even though narrowed, um, it must occupy some space, it must criminalise some speech, notwithstanding the free speech clause, and I don't think the case for that uh, is adequately uh, made out in terms of protecting people from offence. I also think there are two further fears. One, of course, is the obvious fear, which Lisa referred to earlier on, that effectively incitement to religious hatred was passed as a kind of sop to the, the Muslim community, which felt that uh, it had been particularly on the receiving end of anti-terrorism initiatives from this government. Um, the irony of that, of course, being that the overwhelming likelihood, although there haven't been any prosecutions that have gone to the higher courts yet, 
the overwhelming likelihood most commentators accept is that it is Muslim clerics who will wind up being prosecuted under the offense of incitement to religious hatred. And the other difficulty, the point on which I'll end, and I'm sorry for going on for so long, the other difficulty is that once you start down the path of uh, criminalizing incitement to different forms of offense, it's very difficult to know where to stop. I know Lisa managed to get some sort of undertaking that the government didn't want to go further than sexual orientation uh, in terms of criminalizing incitement to hatred against different groups. But the principal case seems to me to be very difficult to say, why should we stop there? Why should incitement to hatred against the disabled not be prohibited? Why should incitement to hatred against women not be prohibited if you go down that line? And that's another reason I oppose going down that line in the first place, in my view, is that the only sensible thing to do is to, to repeal the law on incitement to racial hatred as well. But that incitement to racial hatred also provides my final point, which is, I think I've said it was my final point before, haven't I? But this really is my final <laughs> point. And that is that um, the difficulty is you in, these offences are introduced, just like incitement to racial hatred was introduced, with a whole load of safeguards in it. It had to be intentional for incitement to racial hatred originally. It had to be in relation to matters taking place in the United Kingdom. Um, there are a whole series of other uh, restrictions. Uh, the offence, the, the, the term, the punishment, used to be six, maximum of six months or a fine. It's now seven years. So the difficulty is these things get introduced, and then when people's eye is off the ball slightly, the so-called safeguards start to get gradually sort of chipped away, giving the offence greater scope and giving, obviously, free speech a much smaller scope. So that's my fear. And why, as you may have gathered, I'm opposed to the law on incitement to religious hatred. Thank you very much. Connor Geerty is going to speak next, and I, I, I'm not sure, really, whether he feels the terrain of free expression should be quite as broad as, as Ivan does, or perhaps I do. But, but Connor, can I ask you one more thing? Could you, in, somewhere in your comments, actually tell us how it is that it's possible given that the word defamation, which is the word that is used on the continent and in the UN for what we might have called blasphemy, given that the word defamation has to do with reputation and actually attacking someone's reputation, mm. how it is that one can attack the reputation of a system of ideas, which is what religion is, or indeed whether God, if it's God that's in question, needs uh, his reputation, her reputation, his reputation, um, um, somehow protected by mere politicians whose reputation is always up to. I feel as though I'm on Pretty. university challenge. Gearty <laughs> LSE. I'll try and deal with that, uh, Jeremy. I mean, Lisa. Uh, I will try and deal with it. I've got uh, about 10 minutes, and I'm going to say some things which are uh, disagreeing with what we've heard from Ivan and possibly disagreeing with some of your own views about religion, which are going to be broadly supportive of religion. So let me start by saying that the last time I was on this rostrum, I had the great opportunity to insult the supreme ruler of the Church of England. And that should curry favor with my audience. The reason is that when this magnificent building was opened, I'm part of the home team. I'm LSC, as you know, I think. Uh, the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh desired to see the way in which LSC interacted in a totally normal kind of way. So we had a totally normal kind of 400 people packed in here discussion about climate change. And uh, 20 minutes in, through that door, arrived the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh. And as chairperson of the event, it was essential that I tell the audience 
that nobody should notice the Queen. And as an Irishman on Guy Fawkes Night, as it was, <laughs> I can tell you I had dreamt of moments when I would address a bunch of English people and say, under no circumstances, notice the Queen. <laughs> it, was, it was pleasure. Uh, it was pleasure. So there you are. I've established my bona fides as a critic of religion. And I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, reflections on this notion of religious defamation from a free speech point of view. And so what follows is going to be uh, a series of points which are about the purpose of free speech and where religion fits. So it's going to be a kind of analytical reflection. Uh, and by saying the purpose of free speech, I may already have disturbed some of you because some of you may well believe that you don't need to establish a purpose for free speech, that free speech is a good in itself. And I am prepared to discuss that later on. I do not believe that it is not instrumental. Uh, we have countless examples of where we decide to control speech, and uh, we take it for granted that the controls are right, and we can talk about them if necessary, but it is just wrong to say that speech is absolutely protected as a matter of course. We have already sold that pass when, for example, we've decided to have laws on incitement to murder and other relevant pieces of legislation on, for example, extreme violent child pornography. So we've already agreed that there are exceptions. And my reflections are going to be based on an assumption, which is that we need to find the purpose behind a particular kind of speech. And that purpose then informs the extent to which we support that type of speech. And I'm going to suggest to you three purposes. Uh, but each purpose I'm going to locate, which may or may not be also evidence of my subversive approach to free speech, because I think we can only understand free speech in a particular historical context. So I'm going to try and identify the objectives behind free speech and locate the, the discussion in particular historical context. And the purpose of that is to produce some kind of reflection on when we should be angry about efforts by religion to stifle speech and when we should be anxious about our own inclination to destroy religious speech in the name of secular values. First uh, of my three, and these are bog standard, and I apologize uh, for their obviousness, but they're a route into the discussion. Uh, we care about free speech because we desire to promote and facilitate the promotion of uh, truth. Now, I don't think we need to be committed to the idea of objective truth in order to say that it is immensely important to pursue and to promote the pursuit of truth. Uh, because by truth, we mean here the avoidance of obvious falsehood. And by obvious falsehood, we mean the denial of reason. So we are talking, when we talk about free speech, as a commitment to the meaningfulness of words, to a belief in reason, to a commitment to discussion, to the idea that you say X, and when it is demonstrated to you that X is illogical, unfounded in fact, bizarre, your response is to answer, is not to lock the person who's made the comment up or to call in aid some other force outside reason. Now, that's a very important feature of free speech. And it is obvious 
that religion has in the past, and to some extent still is, the enemy of that kind of truth, and therefore needs to be resisted. And this is where possibly, historically, the idea of hatred becomes relevant. I have something to say, as I've anticipated, about hatred a little while down the line, but I can see why Voltaire hated religion. And I can see why Kant, who did brilliant revolutionary work, might well have been forgiven for seeing religion as the enemy of reason. Because what they encountered was an homogenous religious community determined to impose its version of truth without reason. I'm exaggerating slightly. And it was a rejection of that in the name of free speech that opened up the kind of culture with which we are familiar. So we have in its historical context, we have religion as power determined to resist debate, and that is something we're right to oppose, and we can hate the culture that and the institutions that foster and support such a position. I have very great difficulty saying we can hate any individual within that. Very great difficulty, indeed. In the 21st century, we have contemporary evidence of religion as the denial of this kind of rational discourse. Religion refusing to engage in discussion and debate. We have obvious examples of that, I regret to say, in certain strands of Islam, which is not prepared to engage in this kind of discussion, a reflection on the meaning of words, uh, consideration of the historical context of the organization of certain words into certain sacred books, and we have it in the Christian equivalent, which is the denial, for example, of any discussion of evolution. Not that we are claiming truth, observe, we don't need to claim truth to stand for this one, but that we want to engage in a discussion with a view to the promotion of some rationally braced approach to the world. My uh, son still ha has kids in his class who are committed cre creationists. And it's not that they are committed creationists that upsets my son, it is that they don't discuss it. They don't analyze how things could fit. And this is a kind of religious power that needs to be resisted today as much as it did then. Uh, and certain religions, in contrast, actually are quite comfortable with reason and quite comfortable with discussion. They may not discuss in the way that certain free speech protagonists want, but that's a different issue. You can lock horns over the meaning of reason. Anybody who's read, uh, and he's under a great deal of pressure at the moment because I'm afraid some of his less attractive instincts seem to be coming out, but anybody who's read the reflections of Pope Benedict XVI on reason will see that there's something going on there which cannot be simply discounted as a rejection of reason. So I'm not tarring religion with the whole brush, and anybody who's had the privilege of listening to Rowan Williams, as I've had cheering him last year, will know that there is at work there an extraordinary mind. So I'm not tarring all the brushes of religion, but I'm saying there's a strand to religion that we must oppose. And this, I think I'm going to meet Jeremy Paxman, Bamber Gascoigne's question now. This makes one extremely worried about the UN General Assembly with its combating defamations of religion. Uh, a call, just for background, it's a call on national governments to legislate for the protection of religion from defamation. It is sponsored 
by the organization of the Islamic Conference, uh, it would appear to seek to criminalize criticism of Islam. Uh, I agree with the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion and Belief, uh, who highlighted, quote, the lack of an objective definition of the term defamation of religions makes the whole concept open to abuse. In other words, we don't want to be tied down. We don't want to discuss this. We want to claim a big word, and then we want to fill it with our own meaning undercover. Because we are not interested in debate. We do not want you to explain to us how far this could go. This is enough in itself to reject it as a crude effort to deny the search for truth and to promote uh, the protection of falsehood. Uh, the law of defamation, in contrast, has been about reputation historically and has always acknowledged a defense of truth and also fair comment. So we have been used to that. That's the first of my uh, objectives for free speech, the pursuit of truth or the goal of reason, you might call it. The second, free speech has always been vital to promote political freedom. Free speech through the 18th century into Protestantism, allied to nationality, through the human rights commitments of the French Revolution, has been about political freedom. And we are very familiar with that, the idea that we must be able to speak as we see in order to persuade, in order to share a destiny with our colleagues, is manifest, which is manifest in legislative form. That's why the oaths to which Ivan referred were so pernicious, because they seek to destroy before entry the opportunity of those outside the religious disposition to engage in that kind of discussion. I'll give three, however, contemporary examples of why we need to be mindful of this still, one of which may be challenging for you, and it's for discussion. They all may be challenging. Why should I presume about my audience? In Ireland, where I'm from in the 1980s, there were, uh, on the basis of a pernicious and uh, extreme uh, constitutional amendment, uh, which was uh, purporting to prevent for all time abortion in Ireland, it in fact, as the then Attorney General and current Chair of Governors at LSE pointed out, Peter Sutherland would facilitate the arrival of abortion in Ireland because they didn't understand the law. Uh, that's neither here nor there. Under cover of this constitutional amendment, there were a series of pieces of uh, judicial intervention which criminalized the provision of information about abortion services in the United Kingdom. It was a horrific agenda in Ireland in the 1980s, and part of it was about closing down any discussion of abortion, closing down any discussion, so it's different from abortion. And one of the things was you couldn't communicate that there were these services outside the jurisdiction. That, in my view, is shocking. Now, the uh, challenging one to throw out is an abortion one from this country, and ask you how you feel about this one. The Society for the Protection of Unborn Children care deeply about the termination of pregnancies. They have formed the view that uh, there is a wholesale killing of unborn children going on in this country. They seek to have a party political broadcast which includes visual images of said terminations. They are entitled to a party political broadcast because they are running sufficient candidates in election. The authorities, backed by the House of Lords in its judicial capacity, prevent them from showing the, uh, the uh, thumb 
of their choice and control the way in which they communicate. Now, that's very controversial in the circles of the Society for the Protection of Unborn Children. The question is whether it should be for us here. Do we, as committed to freedom of expression, feel that we ought to allow expression to people with whom we profoundly disagree? Uh, that case, as a committed civil libertarian, leaves me feeling a bit nervous, though I understand why the decision was come to in the way that it was. The second contemporary example is, again, the uh, UN uh, the UN combating defamation of religion. What an obvious example of authoritarian governments seeking to use the cover of religion to prevent any kind of political discussion within their own culture. It's transparent in its effort to do so, emanating as it does from a collection of countries for which political freedom is anathema. This is the latest camouflage for the exercise of uh, abusive political power and should be seen for what it is. The third is Israel. Uh, insofar as there is now a genuine political discussion in Israel about the linkage of citizenship to loyalty to a faith, that should be exposed by people who care about free speech. That there are parties that can be eliminated prior to an election because of their perceived terrorist threat, and that re political leaders can suggest oaths to a faith as a guarantee, as a prerequisite, rather, of participation in a society. That should be exposed as a destruction of political freedom in the name of religious zealotry. So what works for Islam should work for others as well, because the perception, of course, is that we only criticize outside our favored communities. Uh, but I said there was a third, and I'll, I'll begin to wrap up on the third. I won't, like Ivan, I think, say that I'm ending seven times. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, they may, uh, they, if I say it once, they may applaud and I'll have to sit down. You were, you were holding them more. Uh, and the third basis for uh, protection of free speech is uh, not truth and not politics, but actually human dignity, is the, is the development of ourselves, is our leading a true and in Aristotelian terms, flourishing life. And we need information and we need ideas and we need to be exposed to stuff in order to grow as people. Now, that's the main reason why it is an, uh, so bad that in the name of religion, art and culture are controlled. Uh, uh, and the Lady Chatterley's lover type example comes to mind, and so does the religious index, which prevents us from reading certain kinds of books, or used to. That's a tricky line, because at some points, we have to say, you tell me that you need this kind of visual image of an exploited child in order to grow as a person, I'm telling you, you don't. So we do need honestly to see that there must be a division between a dignity and a kind of license, liberty and license. There must be a point at which dignity loses meaning. To me, personally, dignity has nothing to do with watching visual images of exploited people, and therefore that should be completely controlled. And I'm totally relaxed. I acknowledge that there is a, a difference, there is a, a difficult distinction to draw between art and pornography, and that maybe is for discussion. But dignity also means we should accommodate people's religious beliefs. One of the least attractive features of the secular move has been the enjoyment of the castigation of religious sentiment. There are a lot of good people who are actually religious, for whom their personality is tied up with the values that religion brings to society. Community, help, altruism, and 
Uh, this is recognized in the human rights culture, in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, in the Council of Europe. And what I'm moving towards is a recognition that religious people are being persecuted and we should not ignore it merely on account of the fact that they are religious. Uh, an example, Nigeria. Uh, it's particularly bad in Nigeria at the moment. I don't know if you appreciate that. Uh, in, a in one state, the Christian community was attacked uh, the first week of, second week of February. 12 people killed, 1,500 people displaced, 14 churches, eight vicarages, numerous Christian homes destroyed. Uh, there's been an introduction in Sharia law, as you may know, and there's been many tens of thousands of deaths. In uh, Burma, the attacks are such that some of the Islamic communities there feel they are going to be completely destroyed. We need to acknowledge, in my opinion, that the inability to practice religion uh, because of hostile reactions from religious power are actually really affronts to people's dignity. And so too, final point, genuinely final point, so too is secular attack on religion. And it comes back to the question, and this is where I disagree with Ivan, as to whether in our culture today, today, this culture, which is broadly secularist, we need any laws, we need any laws that protect hate. We need to reflect on it. Why do we feel that free speech justifies hate? Why do we feel so bad about laws that say, actually, we've reached a point in our culture where we can certainly oppose religious defamation, and we can certainly oppose efforts to attack churches as churches, but we do not now need to protect hate. And so I am absolutely uh, uh, relaxed about a law that says nobody in this country can go around the place stirring up hatred against any particular person or groups of persons. Hatred is a very big word. And so it follows, unlike Ivan, I'm relaxed about the race-hate laws, which, when they were introduced in 1965, were thought to be an horrific attack on free speech, and which now have transformed a culture, making remarks very, very difficult to sustain, which hitherto would have been regarded as normal. And with the Race and Religious Hatred Act of 2006, we have a protection for free speech. We've had Lisa uh, remind us that Penn are behind it, and well done, Penn. And let me read it to you. Nothing in this part of the Act shall be read or given effect in a way which prohibits or restricts discussion, criticism, or expressions of antipathy, dislike, ridicule, insult, or abuse of particular religions or the beliefs or practices of their adherents or of any other belief system or the beliefs or practices of its adherents. So we can basically, because of paragraph uh, section 29J, we can express antipathy, dislike, ridicule, insult, abuse, of particular religious religions or the beliefs or practices of their adherents. But what we cannot do is preach hate, and nor should we be allowed to, in my opinion. And I think that those of us, therefore, who believe properly in balancing religious freedom and freedom of expression can oppose the use of religious defamation laws to protect the powerful and to deny truth, but we can also oppose the kind of version of secular society which seems to draw strength from hate and hatred of people with religious points of view. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Connor. I think um, 
I think you've, con- you've convinced me. This is terrible. We'll have to argue later. Keenan, your turn. Thanks, Lisa. Um, I'm delighted to be speaking here, but it's about three weeks too early for me to be able to push my own book, so you're fortunate in that. Um, I, want to, I want to pick up on some of the points that Ivan made, because in a, in a sense, at the heart of his talk was a suggestion that blasphemy laws were really as much about social order as they were about religious order, and that's really what I want to pick up on and look at um, uh, uh, the current debate about blasphemy and offence in the context of that, and in, in so doing to disagree with some of the points that, that Connor made. Um, I mentioned the, the 1985 Law Commission report on, on blasphemy, in which the majority agreed that the offence should be abolished without replacement, their words. But the minority dissented, because it suggested that such abolition would deepen racial tensions, and they proposed the replacement of blasphemy by a new offence that recognised, in their words, the duty on our citizens in our society of different races and people of different faiths and of no faith, not purposely to insult or outrage the religious feelings of others. What I want to suggest is that two decades on, both those views in that report have, in Britain, come to pass. On the one hand, as we've heard, blasphemy laws uh, has been abolished. But it has been replaced by a battery of laws that, in a, in a sense, have secularised the offence of blasphemy by restricting the giving of offence, making it a duty not to outrage not just religious feelings, but deeply held cultural beliefs too. Now, more than a century ago, um, Durkheim, Emil Durkheim, pointed out that the most significant aspect of a religion was not the worshipping of a deity, but the carving out of a sacred sphere, a social space that was set apart uh, and in which uh, that, that was protected uh, from being defiled. It was a means by which to ensure that certain religious institutions, beliefs, practices could not be publicly challenged. Now, in today's more secular age, it's as much culture and identity as religion and God that the law seeks to protect from public assault. And in today's world, it's, you know, identity is God in more ways than one, it seems to me. And laws against the giving of offence are helping to create, if you like, a secular notion of the sacred. It's interesting if you look at religious claims about things like defamation, that these days they're not couched in the language of theology, but in the very secular political idiom of inclusion and cohesion, diversity and pluralism. And that's why I think we need to challenge not just the religious argument about blasphemy or defamation, but a secular argument about the giving of offence. And also um, the point that uh, challenge some of Connor's points about the giving of hate too. At the heart of that secular argument about uh, the giving of offence is the belief that in a plural world, where there are many conflicting but deeply held views, then censorship is necessary for good social order. If people are to occupy the same political space without conflict, the sociologist Tariq Madhud has put it quite well, they mutually have to limit the extent to which they subject each other's fundamental beliefs to criticism. Well, I take the opposite view. 
I think if you live in a homogenous society, then the giving of offence could be nothing more than gratuitous, precisely because everybody would think the same. But in a plural society, in the real world, in a plural society, it is both inevitable and important that people offend the sensibilities of others. Inevitable, because there are, where different beliefs are deeply held, there will always be clashes, and those clashes are best dealt with in the open than being suppressed. And important, because any kind of social progress or social change means offending some deeply held sensibilities. The right to subject each other's fundamental beliefs to criticism, it seems to me, is the bedrock of an open, diverse society. George Orwell put it quite well. He said, if liberty means anything, it means a right to tell people what they do not want to hear. Ah, comes the response. But should we not also ensure that minorities are not deliberately denigrated? Is it not incumbent on a, on a civilised society to protect the powerless and the vulnerable? Indeed it is. But ask yourself this. Who is it that benefits most from censorship? Not the powerless and the vulnerable, but rather those that possess both the power to censor and the necessity to do so. It seems to me that the impact of all the things we've been talking about, uh, uh, laws against offence, laws against hate, multicultural censorship, if you like, is in fact to undermine progressive movements within minority communities. The notion of giving offence, for instance, suggests that certain beliefs are so important to certain people that they should be put beyond the possibility of being insulted or caricatured or even questioned. Um, Leszek Kolakowski is a, a Polish Catholic philosopher who started his life as a Polish Marxist philosopher. He makes a point that the sacred is a way of saying things as they are, as they, are they cannot be any different. In other words, do not challenge this because it cannot be otherwise. And that seems to me central to the, both the religious and secular notions of the sacred. The importance of the principle of free speech is precisely that it provides a permanent challenge to the idea that some questions are beyond contention and hence acts as this permanent challenge to authority. The real value of free speech, in other words, is not to those who possess power, but to those who want to challenge them. And the real value of censorship is to those who do not wish their authority to be challenged. And that's why we should be always very wary about this argument that we should have any form of censorship in the name of protecting the weak, the vulnerable, and the powerless. But perhaps I take this view because, you know, I'm one of those poor settlers that, that Connor was, was talking about, that I simply do not understand religious believers' depth of attachment to their faith and hence their, their outrage uh, of, of any insult to it. Believers, however, are not alone in having deep attachments to their faith. Communists were often wedded to their ideas even unto death. Racists have a, a, an almost visceral uh, bonding to their prejudices. Now, no one would suggest that they should be protected from being offended just because their beliefs are so deeply held. And in any case, I'd challenge anyone to show me why my humanism is any less intensely felt than uh, the faith of a believer. And there's something, I think, almost racist about the claim that Muslims say are somehow so different from everyone else that they need special protection for their beliefs or their faiths. 
seems to me that one of the ironies about the argument about defamation is that had such defamation laws existed in the seventh centuries, Islam itself would never have been born. The creation of the faith of Islam was shocking and offensive to the pagan religions out of which it grew and to the other monotheistic religions of the time, Judaism and Christianity. And had you know, the 7th century versions of today's multicultural centres had their way, the 21st century versions may still be fulminating about uh, offensive speech. But it certainly wouldn't have been uh, Islam that was being offended because Islam would never have been born in the first place seems to me that this kind of censorship, this multicultural censorship, I've called it, has not made for a more sensitive or more progressive society, but for a more fractious and a more illiberal one. We've created what the novelist Monica Alley calls a marketplace of outrage, where everyone is constantly encouraged to say, my feelings are more hurt than yours. You might recall a couple of years ago, Iqbal Sakrani, who was then uh, the head of uh, the Muslim Council of Britain, made some derogatory comments about homosexuality in it, on an interview he gave for the Today programme. And ludicrously, it led to a, a police investigation under uh, uh, hate speech laws. In response, 22 Muslim leaders wrote to the Times demanding the right to be able to, and I quote, freely express their views in an atmosphere free of intimidation and bullying. Well, those same leaders denied such a right to newspapers publishing cartoons about Muhammad. Many of those happy to see cartoons that drew the, uh, uh, about Muhammad drew the line at anything mocking the Holocaust. Gay rights groups want Muslims and black ragged artists to be prosecuted for the homophobia, but they want the right to criticise Muslims as they see fit. And so it goes on. And it's fast becoming a case of my speech should be free, but yours is too costly. And it's interesting because this applies to the question of hate speech as well. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a couple of weeks since Hurt Builders, the, the Dutch politician, was banned from coming to Britain because of promoting hate speech through his, through his film Fitna. Interestingly, Builders in, in Holland wants to ban the Koran because, he says, it promotes hatred and violence. Once you start discussing, uh, uh, once you start arguing that hatred should be a, a, a matter for, for censorship in that fashion, then you get to a point where nobody can say anything about anybody else, precisely because anything can be deemed offensive or hateful to some other group or some other person. Let me leave the last word to Salman Rushdie. Human beings, he wrote in his essay, In Good Faith, which was written a year after the fatwa, understand themselves and shape their futures by arguing and challenging and questioning and saying the unsayable, not by bowing the knee, whether to gods or to men. I couldn't agree more. The argument for censorship, it seems to me, whether it's couched in terms of defamation, in offensiveness, or in terms of hatred, it's really an argument to restrict democracy, contain criticism, and undermine progressive movements. It's an argument against pluralism, not for it. Seems to me that we can build a plural society in which free speech provides the means of engagement and dialogue between different parts of a society. Or a sectional society in which the powerful and the reactionary maintain their power in the name of tolerance and respect. The choice is ours.
Thank you very much indeed, Keenan. Um, I have a great many questions, and I'm sure you're preparing yours too, because I'm going to turn to you in a moment with them. But before I, I take, I'll just take another moment. I just want to ask Connor whether he wants to reply in the first instance to some of the points that Keenan has made, um, and I wonder too whether in so doing, you might like to stretch the area of truth to move into that area that certainly we at Penn quite often find ourselves having to defend, uh, which is the area of fiction. And I know that you don't want to make a radical distinction between the two, but it might be worth um, reflecting on just for a moment. Okay. Uh, I think I need to get really close to this, actually. Uh, I totally, of course, agree with quite a lot of what Keane was saying, um, particularly about... Uh, the importance of offense, the importance of being able to communicate to people who don't want to hear what you want to say. Absolutely. I had a much narrower point, which is about focused incitement to hatred and about whether we want to defend that. What uh, Section 29A says of our laws is religious hatred means hatred against a group of persons defined by reference to religious belief or lack of religious belief. And then 29B, which is the important one, a person who uses threatening words of behavior or displays any written material which is threatening is guilty of an offense if he intends thereby to stir up religious hatred. So I suppose my point is that it's actually rather narrow. And what it reflects is an effort by our culture to take into account the various points that Keenan has made so well which are reflected in other parts of the legislation, whilst reserving the power to intervene where there is this deployment of the Koran, it might be, or it could be the Bible, or it could be a work of art or literature, to bring in the second point invited by Lisa, uh, where these are being deployed as verbal weapons to produce outcomes which may well be designed to lead to physical harm, because what is the purpose of stirring up hatred if it is not to get others to do the physical work of attack for which you are yourself not equipped. So I'm saying I think the difference between us may be much slighter. I'm taking a rather lawyerly, narrow approach and able to agree with quite a lot of what I heard while maintaining my position on the appropriateness of such legislation. Thank you, Connor. Over to you. Um, show of hands, please. Um, take one over there. I'll take several questions at once, and then because we don't have that much time, one there. Then there was somebody just next, and then two on this side. Yes, I mean, there was reference to the um, Danish cartoons, um, you know, collected in newspaper by various artists, uh, which um, many Muslims felt were insulting Muhammad. And uh, there was a demonstration, and a Muslim man was subsequently spent, sent to jail for several years for uh, calling for British soldiers to be sent home from Iraq in boxes. But I, I argue, surely it's reasonable in a war between Muslims and Christians for a Muslim to prefer his own religion. Uh, and secondly, he wasn't changing his mind. I mean, the great majority of people in the country before the war began, Muslim or non-Muslim, were against the war. He, 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 he were against British troops in Iraq, and he still thought British troops shouldn't be in Iraq. So by definition, he wants them to be chased out. I mean, in 1905 in Russia, there was huge demonstrations celebrating the Battle of Toshiba, which is when 38, which is 90% of the Russian ships, got sunk by Japan. That was a huge celebration. So surely it's reasonable for anti-war 
people to celebrate when their own, side, when their own country loses a battle or a skirmish. Thank you. There was another question just very close to, where was it? It's gone now. Um, one here, and then over to that side, if you can. I, I, I think that you make a great mistake if you claim that the, me, the necessary and primary uh, requirement of hatred is that it causes others to commit physical violence. Hatred is very important because, as a species, we have evolved repugnancy in order to avoid certain things. We've had to learn to hate slavery, we've had to learn to hate racism, and we've had to learn to hate many other things that we rightly now think are repugnant. If you stop people from hating, then you stop very important things like that from ever being able to happen. I think it, there are some weasel words about, well, hatred may well lead to, well, if it does lead to it, then prosecute that which happens afterwards. We don't need to keep building fences around fences around fences. I think that um, that's where the problem begins, and you get to a ridiculous reductio ad absurdum, which I fear um, is what was beginning to happen in what some of Connor had to say. Is that M? M that's me. You're directing that at me. You didn't say it at the start. That's, yeah. Questions over there. They're going to take two more, and then we'll respond from here. I had a question about to what extent the scientific community. Uh, I have a question about to what extent the scientific community has informed the formulation of um, whether it's religious defamation law or um, you know, racial defamation law. In that, it's somewhat related to what the gentleman was saying over there. In that, where do we come to a point of um, nature versus nurture in shaping what we find offensive or repugnant? Um, and is there any area of study that's um, that's looking at? Um, you know, the brain patterns, if you like, of things that, that we find abhorrent, such as images of, of death or exploitation of children or, you know, ug things that are, you know, ugly versus what we, as the gentleman was saying, have learnt to find, have been nurtured to find as offensive. So nature versus nurture. There's one, take one more on that side and then we'll, we'll um, have some responses. Hi. Um, coming from a, an American perspective, I um, am aware that in many jurisdictions, uh, racial hate laws are often used in the criminal justice system as an add-on to um, otherwise offenses um, in, an, in adding sentencing, and whether or not there is place for that in a democratic society and whether or not such behaviors, when you add a, a hatred, especially in the US, it's racial hatred, to the offense, whether or not that's justified. OK, thank you. Uh, who'd like to go first um, in responding? Connor, do you okay. want to start since yeah, there's what, okay. with the one question that was directed no, specifically I, I, to you? Yeah, well, maybe I'll, I'll just do three of them very quickly. Uh, the, the last one. I think it so much depends on context, as I said at the start. I think the United States can have a very relaxed approach to cases like Skokie in Illinois because they haven't had direct experience of Nazi success. I think the Germans could be rightly more cautious. In some ways, uh, the possibility of success concentrates the mind on how much freedom we want to give people whose race hate is a route to power. So I think context is my short answer on that one. The democracy may be permitted in certain circumstances not inconsistently with democracy <clears throat> to allow it. Uh, and that's because answering the uh, question that was indirectly but in the end obviously aimed at me, uh, I, I think uh, 
it is, of course, absurd to, in, uh, to prevent the incitement of hatred of things, which was the term that was revealingly used. And I would go further and I would say associations, groups, and ideas. I'm all for hatred of ideas, groups, associations, things. Where I am concerned is hatred of people. And I'm not convinced, as a person who's committed to the notion of equality of dignity, that uh, we should uh, regard our uh, incitement of others to hate people as consistent with the idea that we have equal dignity. Because it seems to me that if you are inciting hatred of people, you are actually very close to saying something about them which is not consistent with respecting their dignity. And that's where I am on that point. It's not incitement of things. On science, I have plugged no book. Lisa said my last book was flimsy. I think that wasn't quite her word, but certainly not as big as this one. I did not say that. Ah, you said tiny. You said tiny. <laughs> I quoted uh, your own I website. I mean, it is. It is absolutely I tiny. quoted your own website. It is, my own website's also honest. My own, thank you for the plug for the website. I am, doing, I am doing a talk on the 7th of May called Human Rights After Darwin, and I am really, really interested in that science point about hardwiring and about the extent to which, which I happen to believe, we are hardwired to do good as well as to do bad, and that the recent studies with animals and with kids indicates that this is not something which we learn, that we are born with an empty head into which is poured morality. We are born with levels of morality, which is quite an interesting point to explore. So, I'm uh, sort of very interested in the point you've raised, but uh, I wasn't supposed to even answer you, so I'll stop there. Right. I'm, I'm just going to take a few more responses from the panel before going to you. Um, Keenan, do you want to say anything about the anti-war point? Or the yeah, I, I, want, I want to pick up on, on, on that, which is um, that a number of uh, protesters, um, it was, a, for those who don't know, there was a protest outside the Danish embassy in London, um, at which a number of uh, protesters against the Danish cartoons held up placards, um, which are things like uh, uh, behead the, 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 the enemies of Islam, and there were, there, were, there were slogans about bringing British soldiers back from Iraq in body bags and so on. And uh, four men were uh, convicted uh, of incitement to uh, racial hatred, for incitement to, 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 to murder, um, and received, I think, between six and eight years' imprisonment. Um, it, 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 it seems to be a completely outrageous uh, uh, um, uh, conviction. Uh, um, but it also expresses this idea that, what, that what, what's been happening in recent years, and it's not just this case, there's a number of other cases, is that the, uh, the notions of um, uh, protecting minorities from hate speech has now increasingly been used by the government to actually criminalise dissent uh, or, 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 or hate speech from minority communities. A very good example was Samina Malik, the, the lyrical terrorist, so-called lyrical terrorist, who was uh, convicted later, uh, 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 the conviction was quashed, but nevertheless she was convicted in the first place. Um, uh, effectively writing uh, uh, very bad doggerel about jihad. Um, um, the, you know, the, 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 the parts of the, the anti-terror laws about the glorification of terrorism the point is that you can see this part in the context of the war on terror, but you also have to see it in the context of the culture of censorship and the culture of censorship of hate speech um, that's built up over the years because they're all justified. 
on the grounds that one must not have hatred or, or, or promote hate speech and so on. So what, what begins as a, 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 a so-called defense of minority communities quickly, almost inevitably, becomes a, 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 an attack on those communities and used to attack those communities. It's well worth remembering, for instance, that the first person who was uh, convicted under the incitement to, to racial hatred part of the Racial Relations Act was uh, Michael X, the Trinidadian uh, black power leader um, in 1969, if I remember right, uh, for incitement to racial hatred. So uh, I think it's very important to recognize that, that all these laws actually work to the detriment of, of the powerless of, 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 of minority groups. I think, I think I just want to add something to that because I, I thought it was very, very interesting when the government banned Gerd Wilders, the Danish MP, who did make a rather bad film showing the excesses of the Koran. Um, when I tried to see this film online, I found something like 20 films called by the same name, in other words, Fitna. And the content of those 20 films was a very interesting uh, argument for free expression because one of those films showed you all over, over the images of, of um, marauding animals and murderous animals used all the uh, quotations from the Bible which were murderous and hideous. Another one showed you a very nice gathering in a mosque in which only the loving citations from the Koran <laughs> were quoted. Another one had Jewish um, Orthodox uh, people in, I imagine, somewhere in America, um, saying, down with Israel, because it goes against the laws of God. <laughs> and these were patently Jews saying it. And that was another version of fitna, if you like. So this circulation of ideas, this form of response to what our government saw fit to uh, establish as a banning of somebody preventing them from free expression in, of all places, our House of Lords, um, ends up on the web as this huge debate about ideas. So, sorry, uh, do you want yes. to say something Could in response I? to the first lot? Um, yes. <clears throat> Could I try and sort of sum up a few of the things, if that's all right? They all really come back, my answers to these other points that have been raised, to how we define the sort of speech that we're concerned about protecting. I think you can avoid the problems that Connor quite rightly identifies about saying that there must be some things that we can prohibit. And he gave examples of incitement to murder or child pornography and so on. You can deal with those problems, it seems to me, purely definitionally, because that kind of speech, almost by definition, is not the core element of the concept of protected speech, which is about contributions to public discourse. If you confine your core protection of free speech uh, which, is not, which the state is not entitled to interfere with, to public discourse, the contribution to public debate type speech. And of course that can be done in many ways, including lots of forms of artistic uh, expression. Then I think many of these problems evaporate. The problem about, just to deal very briefly with the points that were raised, the problem about hate crimes evaporates substantially because once someone has crossed the line by committing an act which is totally independently of any communicative content it might have criminal, uh, they're exposed to the risk of criminal punishment. How you then decide how much punishment they get seems to me only raises communicative free speech issues very, very peripherally, if at all. We think it's perfectly legitimate to punish people more severely through the criminal process uh, because of their motivation. 
if their, if their motivation was profit for killing a relative, say, they get more severe uh, punishment. At least they wind up in prison for longer. If they've chosen their victims because they're particularly vulnerable, uh, they get a longer punishment. And I don't think any of us thinks there's any particular difficulty about that. And so I don't think there is either once that line's been crossed. Just to make two final points. Firstly, um, that's why I do have the problem with incitement to racial hatred, given that uh, Connor has challenged my own view where I oppose it. It seems to me the real problem there relates to this concept of hatred generally. It's very difficult generally to say it's a good thing for people to incite others to hate, subject to the point that was made in the audience earlier on. But of course, under the racial hatred provision, you don't have the safeguards that Connor read out in relation to the religious offence. You don't need to show an intent to incite hatred. You don't need to show the use of threatening language. Abusive or insulting language uh, is adequate. And the difficulty, if you're wedded as I am, to the idea that public, what constitutes public discourse can't be prohibited is that you are saying, through your law on incitement to racial hatred, that some people's ability to participate in the process of public discourse is constrained because we find their message so offensive that they, we don't think they should be part of the political process. The problem that creates is twofold. One, it means people tend not to engage with them and expose how idiotic their views are and rebut them. And secondly, they then have the further um, luster added to them that they're some kind of free speech martyr. The B BNP discourse is full of this sort of stuff. You know, our message is too dangerous for the government to let you hear it, because if you heard it, you might believe us and join us. And that's just a foolish way, it seems to me, pragmatically, to deal with extreme speech, rather than allowing it into the marketplace of ideas and having its limitations exposed. Finally, the problem about basing it all on a right to dignity, it's true that the right to dignity underlies lots of our concepts of human rights. But the question here is, does an individual's right or a group's right to respect for their dignity override another individual's right to freedom of expression? And that's where you get into the difficulty. And that's where relying on dignity, just as a concept, doesn't justify a race-hate law. All it does is say this may be a reason for restricting speech, but you've still got to strike that balance between the two. It seems to me where you're engaged in public discourse, that balance must come down for reasons of democratic participation, individual self-fulfillment, etc. all the reasons Connor mentioned, must come down in favour of speech. So. Thank you. I, I'm really sorry. There are a lot of questions, but I think we've actually run out of time, and I'm afraid our free expression today has trumped yours, which is a great shame <laughs> because I've just noticed there's a free expression clause on this sheet given to chairs by the LSE. Um, uh, <laughs> which actually, I can read it to you, but I don't know if I've got time. <laughs> Um, but in any case, I'd like to thank you very much. I'm, there are books out there if you want to have a look at them. I'm sure the speakers will take a few minutes to answer your questions individually, but I believe we're meant to be out of here by 3.30. So I'm very sorry. Thank you for coming. Do join Penn. Come to more events. Um, and exercise your free expression.